So this is the first of two topical sermons, which is not normal for us here at CBC. Typically what we do on Sundays is preach our way, make our way, sequentially through books of the Bible. But this sermon today and the sermon next week will be more of a topical nature, where under a certain topic we will survey various passages of the Scripture. A very common banner, phrase, whatever, that you hear a lot in our day, it's been very popular in the last 40, 50 years, is the question, what would Jesus do? There were bracelets made. What would Jesus do? WWJD. And no offense to anyone who has ever worn such a bracelet or maybe has one on this morning, but there is a better question that we could ask. Rather than what would Jesus do, we can ask the question, what did he do? What did he accomplish, in other words, on behalf of his people? What we're going to consider in this short series is something even slightly different from that question. As wonderful as that question is, what did Jesus do for us? We're going to consider his public ministry. We're going to consider his teaching, things that he communicated about himself, either in formal discourse or even in just interchanges. We're going to consider what he taught about the law and about the gospel. Many like to talk about the teaching of Jesus. Many sort of co-opt and hijack the teaching of Christ to make it say what they want to say. Many like to talk about what Jesus did in terms of miracles, debate those, whatever. There are a lot of takes, in other words, on the earthly ministry of Christ. Many of them, not great. Things are taken out of context. Poor assumptions are made. Even more so, the teaching of Christ and the miracles of Christ are not approached from a sound place. Biblically, that's true terms of our understanding of the scriptures. Theologically, that's true, how we grasp doctrine. And it's also true, big word, hermeneutically, meaning how we interpret the scripture. We don't come to the teaching of Christ from a sound place in those various ways. We don't often know how the whole Bible hangs together. We don't understand well, the flow of redemptive history. We are unfamiliar to some extent or another with the one plan, the one story of redemption that the scriptures reveal. And so, when we don't rightly understand the whole, we do some bad things with the parts. The things that Jesus taught are significant. Amen? Amen. The things that he did and his earthly ministry are significant. We, of course, want to see and understand Christ's teaching and his ministry rightly. A few things need to be said before we move forward. So all of this is by way of introduction, just trying to prepare us for what we're going to consider today. Some in the room may have a Bible where it's got some black letters in it, got some red ones in it. Right? The red ones are the words that Jesus himself spoke in some of our versions of the Scripture needs to be stated that the red letters in the Bible are no more inspired than the black ones, right? Just 
Just because Jesus said it doesn't mean it is more inspired than any other text of Scripture because the Spirit of Christ, high level, wrote it all. Every piece of Scripture hangs beautifully together with all the others. We consider, if we're going to be faithful students of the Scripture, we consider every passage in light of what has come before our passage, redemptively, historically. We consider every passage in its own context. And we consider every passage in light of the entire Bible. And we understand every passage in light of the main point of all of Scripture. Now this series will come and go quickly. I mean, I feel that way about sermon series that are 20-something sermons long, how much more so with two messages. I mean, it'll be over as soon as it starts. But I want to try to be clear and helpful for us. Each of these two sermons has a main point, and I'm going to try to make that plain at the outset of each message. And then, as I said, in each of these messages, we will survey a number of passages from the gospel. So you might have a question, like, do we do Bible drill at CBC? Not normally. But today and Next Sunday, get them out, get ready. I mean, because we're going to be flipping all over the place in the Gospels and trying to find passages. You may beat me at certain points, and that's fine. The point of today's message, the first of two sermons in what did Jesus preach, is this. Jesus preached himself as the Christ. Jesus preached, Jesus taught that he himself is the Christ. We've just finished a series through the book of Genesis. Major things that we saw on loop in that series. Here's a few. God is a redeemer. Saw that over and over again. Literally every week, God is a redeemer. We saw this over and over again every week. God would redeem through the promised seed of the woman. Through that promised offspring. He would save us through him. Over and over we saw that God worked even in and through the sinfulness of his people to bring about his purposes of redemption through this promised offspring. Now, big facts. Jesus is him, that promised offspring. Big for us today is that Jesus understood himself to be him, that promised offspring. And Jesus taught that and demonstrated that repeatedly in his earthly ministry. As I've already stated, just public service announcement, we're not just going to look at discourses or like what could be considered sermons of Christ. We're going to look at some of discourses, but also just some interchanges to assess his public teaching. So question before we dive into passages. Why does all this matter? Why does this project of considering what Jesus taught about himself, why does that matter? And why does it matter that we would rightly understand that he taught himself to be the Christ and that he understood that all of the Scripture was about him? Why does that matter? Well, as Christians, first thing we can say is that we seek to be people of the Word. And whether or not you believe that the entirety of Scripture is about Jesus and what He did in the plan of God to save us is a watershed. Friends, it is. This is a dividing line amongst Christians. Always has been. Whether or not you believe that all of the Scripture is about Christ 
and ultimately is about what he did in God's plan of redemption to save sinners will determine how you read and understand any passage in all of this book. It will. It's the lenses through which we see the whole thing. It will, this understanding or not, of Christ being the point of the entire Scripture will in many respects affect our perspective on the entirety of the Christian life. So this is a big deal. The point today, just to reiterate, slightly expanded, the point, like if you're taking notes or if you're just trying to take mental notes, what are we going to talk about today? What are we going to consider today? This. Jesus preached himself as the Christ, and he clearly understood that he, as the Christ, was the point of the entire Bible. There it is. That's the thesis, so to speak, for this morning. So let's look to the book. Let's look at passages. Open your Bibles. And Ryan, I know, is going to do the best he can, or Alicia, going to track with me back there trying to get these texts up here for you. But if you've got a Bible in hand, it may help you. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. This is where we'll begin. Let's track with the Word of God as we seek to track together this morning. The context here, Jesus has just been tempted by Satan. His earthly ministry is beginning. The whole temptation of Satan peace is a big deal as well. Many times, I know many of us, when we go to Luke 4 or Matthew 4, and we read about the temptation of Christ, the main point that we're given is something like, you too can defeat the devil if you use the Word of God. Okay, at best, that's a secondary application. The point of that passage, of the temptation of Christ, is that he is the new and better Adam. The first one failed. The first Adam was in a garden paradise, had everything going for him, and he failed. The second Adam shows up on the scene, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, hadn't eaten in 40 days, has everything stacked against him, and succeeds. And now, his earthly ministry is going to start. How's it going to begin? In Luke's account, Luke's record. Here we go. Luke 4 and verse 16. Jesus has returned to Galilee, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, gripping, gripping. Think of the scene, right? He comes back. He's back in his hometown. He goes to the synagogue, the place of teaching and worship on the Sabbath day is handed the scroll by the attendant from the prophet Isaiah. The portion he reads is from Isaiah 61 as it's broken down in our modern versions. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 to be precise. It's about the servant of the Lord. 
the one who would come to save God's people, to accomplish salvation, to preach the good news of the arrival of that salvation. Isaiah 61 is about the Christ. Look at verse 20 and the intensity of this moment. It's palpable reading it. He's read the scroll, hands it to the attendant. I mean, it takes a little time. Hands it to the attendant and goes and takes his seat, which is, in that context, is like standing behind this. This is where the teacher would have sat to teach. He sits down. Everybody's locked in. And he starts with this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We're just getting started. Luke 24. We read this earlier in the service. We're going to look to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and following again. What did Jesus preach? What did he teach? Context here the aftermath of Christ's resurrection. He has been seen already by several women around the tomb that morning. The disciples have heard the news. People have gone to the tomb and Christ is nowhere to be found. There are two disciples walking on the road between Jerusalem and a village named Emmaus. They're walking and talking with each other about everything that's happened. It's been quite a few days. Verse 15, while they're talking and they're discussing things together, Jesus, resurrected, glorified Jesus, shows up, walks beside them. But they are kept, we're told, from recognizing him. They couldn't see who he was. They didn't know him as Jesus, the man they had followed. He says to them, what are you talking about, effectively? What's this conversation you're having with each other? And they stand there and they're sad. They're downtrodden. They're discouraged. And they look at him and they're like, bro, are you the only person in Jerusalem? Have you just not been here? Because like, this is all anybody's talking about. Any Jewish person in Jerusalem is talking about this, what's happened here in these last few days. And Jesus, what things? What are y'all talking about? Verse 19, right? And they say to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And then how our religious leaders, the chief priests, the rulers, they delivered him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we're, we're discouraged And we don't know what to do because we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. In other words, we had hoped that he was the promised one. He's dead now. But then it gets even more intense. It's the third day since these things happened. The third day is a significant theme in the Scriptures. And... Some women of ours, women we know, they've amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, verse 23, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, and they said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now, verse 25, his response. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, the prophets wrote about this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the Torah, the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, 
Moses and the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, beginning with those things, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they go on. They keep walking. Walking with him, and he's unpacking. He's opening to them the scriptures, all the things they teach about him. So they go, and they draw into the village. He acts as though he's going to go on. They say, hey, why don't you stay for dinner? He agrees. Then verse 30, don't miss this. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, we've heard that before. The blessing of the bread and the breaking of the bread and the distribution of the bread around a table. It had happened just a few days prior. It's at this point in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he's gone. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Skip to verse 35. They told everyone what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Two big thoughts here, big things. Jesus is known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let the reader understand, right? Let the listener understand. He will be known to us in the breaking of the bread here in a little while. As surely as we put this bread in our mouths, Jesus died for us. Amen. But then verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Huge question. How did he open the scriptures? He didn't just talk about cool stuff from the scriptures. He didn't just give them background and context and a bunch of stuff about tradition and how they should understand this and what this rabbi taught. He opened to them the scriptures about himself. Amen? Somebody. This is what caused the disciples' hearts to burn. He opened this book and showed us himself from the book, and our hearts burn. It's what we aim to do here every week. So we aim to do when we gather because our hearts too burn when our eyes behold the Christ from every page of the Scripture because it's about Him. John chapter 5, verse 30. Context here. It's a Sabbath day. There's a lot of regulation about the Sabbath day, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. There's been a confrontation with Jesus on the Sabbath day. Happened a lot in his earthly ministry, right? Jesus has healed a man. Jesus also, in responding to the objection that he got for healing a man, said, well, you know, my father is working and so am I. And they're like, well, hold the phone now. I mean, you, you're going to call God your father. You're making yourself equal with God. You're saying, my father's at work, so I'm at work too. We do the same thing. Can't talk like that. Verse 30 of John 5. An interchange is unfolding. Jesus is saying, I can do nothing on my own. In other words, I always do what the Father and I have decided. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, he's going to do a little lesser to greater thing right here. He's going to first talk about John the Baptist for a second. He's like, you went to see John the Baptist, right? And he has borne witness to the truth. Why? He talked about me. He was telling everyone that I'm coming. Now that the testimony, excuse me, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. I am condescending right now. You went to hear John speak. You agreed with John. You anticipated that what John said would come. I'm him. I'm saying this so that you might be saved. John was a burning light and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in that. But the testimony, now he goes, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Then this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Thinking about Luke chapter 24 and verse 32, our hearts burn when the scriptures were opened to us concerning the Christ, concerning this verse here, verse 39 of John 5. If we are not understanding the Scriptures to be a testimony of Christ, they are of no value. Other than, at best, a collection of wisdom writings that might help us in life. But there's a bunch of those on this planet. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You think you know things that will save you. But here's the thing, the thing, the one that will save you is me. And that is what all of this has been about. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. In other words, my Father glorifies me. We're going to think about that more from John 8 later. The Father seeks the glory of the Son. That's a mind-blowing thought. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, one on whom you have set your hope, right? You look to the book of Moses all the time. You look to the Torah all the time. You have set your hope there, and Moses is the one who accuses you. Why? Verse 46, for if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. I, I don't know how many of you, I, I certainly did not grow up this way. When, when reading or looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, did I ever understand or hear that, first and foremost, is about Jesus? Never. If we're rightly understanding the law, as it's formally known, the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it, we are reading it to be a testimony about Christ. Moses wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, asked Christ. Another clear indicator of the inspiration of all of Scripture. Jesus himself is saying, I've shown up on this planet, and I'm just saying the things that Moses wrote a long time ago. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Luke 7 and verse 18. Context here. John the Baptist is in prison. Many will know that John was in prison because of a situation with Herod and how he continued to tell Herod that his marriage was unlawful, etc. John was a prophet. He said many controversial things. He's found himself in jail as a result. John, too, is a human being. I assume he knows that his life will not be long. His disciples, beginning in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Well, they're reporting things to John about Jesus and about Christ's ministry. So John calls two of his disciples to himself. I assume this is a prison visit kind of situation. Calls two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, they've come to Jesus now. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Then this very interesting interjection from Luke, verse 21. In that hour, like right then, what had he been doing? Healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then Jesus speaks. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, in a moment perhaps of weakness, maybe doubt, maybe not, maybe he just needs affirmation, he wants to know. He sends two of his followers to Jesus. Are you the Christ? Are you the one who we are all looking for? Or should we look for someone else? And then Jesus responds, you go and tell John what you've seen and heard. He doesn't just simply say yes, but he says yes. I'm him. You go tell John what you've seen and heard. You tell him that the blind receive their sight. You tell him that the lame walk and that lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Why did he answer that way? Because the prophets had written some stuff. The prophets had written some stuff. Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 4. You don't have to flip there. You can just listen. Isaiah writes these words. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That's Isaiah 35.4. Isaiah 35.5 reads this way. The next verse. Then, when your God comes to save you, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You tell John that the blind see. You tell him that the lame walk. Tell him that the deaf hear. 
Tell him that the mouths of the mute are unstopped, and you tell him that the poor have good news preached to them. Yes, I'm him. I am the one of whom the prophets wrote. What is the point? Just brief aside here. Fits nicely, though, with this consideration of Christ's public ministry. If I were to ask you a question, what is the point of the miracles of Christ? The point, above all others. Why'd he do them? Some answers are not the right ones, right? We, well, did he just do it to like really do some powerful, awesome stuff? Okay, they were powerful and awesome things, but no. Did he do these things because he was compassionate and he wanted to help people? Is that the reason? Well, it's a reason, but it's not the reason. Because these people would go on and die. Were the miracles of Jesus ultimately about our faith? Was it a test of our faith? Now, of course, we receive everything that Christ has done for us by faith. We do. And are the miracles of Jesus about our faith? No. What are the miracles of Christ about? The point of them, above all others, is to demonstrate that he is the promised one, the promised offspring who was promised to us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The point of his miracles is to demonstrate clearly that he is the one of whom the prophets wrote, that he is the Savior, that he is the one who would save God's people, and that the one that we've all been waiting for is here. Jesus came, and he accomplished the plan. You can't help but see in so many of these passages that we're even considering today, we'll see them again. Jesus talks a lot about his father and how he and his father are working together, how there's a plan. I'm not just doing my will, I'm doing my father's will. All of that, what is that? That's the covenant of redemption before the world started. This was always the plan. Jesus came, he accomplished the plan that he and his father had made. In other words, he understood the assignment, and he did it. He would make satisfaction for the sins of God's people. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. He would die under the law to pay the law's penalty. He would die as a lawbreaker. As McKenzie said so beautifully, you, you show me, show me in this universe, you show me a God who bleeds. He bled, why? For Adam's helpless race, like we sang earlier. He bled, why? To save lawbreakers, though he had kept the law perfectly. He died under the law so that in him we would be set free from the condemnation of the law. He has made atonement for our sins. They are now right. He has absolved us of guilt. We are no longer guilty, but innocent. And we have been forgiven of all of our transgression on account of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death under the law as a man. But then he came in addition in accomplishing and understanding the assignment. He came to keep the law. You're cursed. Deuteronomy 27, Galatians 3. Cursed is anyone who does not do everything that is written in the book of the law. Leviticus 18.5. Do these things written in the law and you will live forever. Problem with that, none of us have kept it. Christ kept it for us. Amen. He came and fulfilled all righteousness. When he was another account at the beginning of his ministry that often isn't talked about the way that it should be. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, pointedly. When Jesus is baptized by John, what does he say to John? Why was Christ baptized? He didn't need it. 
He says to John, it's appropriate that we do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. For whose sake? Not his own, but ours. He came to fulfill all righteousness to be our righteousness that we receive by faith. He came in order to give his people eternal life. That is the point of the miracles of Christ and of his earthly work. Not saying that there aren't other things going on with the miracles of Jesus, but that is the thing. They too are about redemption and salvation. John chapter 6, verse 25 and following. I'm going to try to survey these verses in a reasonable time frame. Context, John 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 in a desolate place. It's a wilderness place. He's just miraculously fed thousands of people. Then he walks across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Now, when you hear about a miraculous water crossing and a miraculous feeding in a desolate place, light bulbs ought to be flashing here. Like, we've read that somewhere else. We've read that in the book of Exodus. That's what the Lord did there. So Jesus has come, and there's now, this has all occurred. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked across the sea. There's now going to be an interchange, a discourse of sorts in the synagogue in Capernaum. Beginning in verse 25. When they found him, the people go, they find him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, well, you might not have known that he came because he literally walked across the water, right? Then, verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw things, saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're hungry. You want me to feed you again. That's why you're here. Verse 27, do not labor, he says, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Good highlighter verse for you, John 6, 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What must we do in order to be doing the works of God? Believe in me. In other words, verse 30, so they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Which is an insane question considering that he had just fed them all the day prior in a rather miraculous fashion. What do you do? What sign do you do? What work do you perform? Our fathers, then they're going to they're look back. They're going to appeal to the Exodus, actually. They're going to appeal to this heavenly bread that their fathers ate. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So when Moses was here, he, he did some pretty incredible stuff, Jesus. What do you do? He says to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, in other words, to these people who have just brought the manna up, he goes, oh, you were talking about manna. Okay, you remember the manna. That's great. As significant as that was in its own context, as big of a deal as that is to you, the manna and everything that was going on there was about me. How so? Because it was a pointer, that heavenly bread that sustained your fathers in the wilderness was a pointer to the heavenly bread that your father in heaven would give to all of his people. I am that bread who has come down from heaven to give life to 
my people. We continue. They say to him, good response here. Sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But then this, all that the Father gives me will come to me though. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Here's this talk about him and his father again. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the father's will, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here's some more about the father's will, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then there's some grumbling and some arguing about all of this. And Jesus effectively says to them, look, don't argue about me. Don't argue about this. Nobody's going to believe me unless the Father does that work in him. If you're taught by God, you'll believe me. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, here we go again, ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's talking about himself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now again, like what is he talking about? That's what the Jews are saying. What is he saying? He's talking about eating him? How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they say? So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he doubles down. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, excuse me, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me. He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. Holy smokes, right? Like the manna was great. I am greater. That bread sustained them for a season and they died. I have come that if you feed on me by faith, you will never die. Just as that bread sustained your father's sojourning in the wilderness, I am your sustenance in this life as you sojourn here and wait for the new heavens and the new earth. I will sustain you. It is through being united to me and feeding on me that you will be saved and I promise you, you will be. John chapter 8. Just flip over a couple of pages. We're going to look pointedly at verses 48 to 59. Again, I'm mindful of time, friends. I want to love you well. We're going to try to do this efficiently. Everybody doing okay? Everybody fine? All right, great. All right. Verses 12 to 20 of John 8. Jesus effectively there tells people, hey, I'm the light of the world. Everything else is darkness. I'm light. Verses 21 to 30, Jesus tells the people, you are from below, but I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. But when you have lifted up the Son of Man, in other words, when you crucify the Son of Man, you'll know that I'm him. That's big deal, big stuff. Verses 31 to 47 of John 8, Jesus tells the people listening to him, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Now, this upsets people. Because the, the Jewish audience listening to him says, now, hold on a minute. We're offspring of Abraham. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves. So why do you say to us that you'll become free? Jesus says, look, okay, anyone who sins is a slave. But if the son, talking about himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. But you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I say what I've seen from my father, that I've seen with him. You do what you have heard from yours. All right? Then they reply again. Well, Abraham is our father. Notice how they keep appealing to Abraham. And then Jesus replies, if you were Abraham's children. So clearly this is a spiritual piece. Two ways to be Abraham's kids, physically, spiritually, right? If you were, in fact, Abraham's children spiritually, you would not be trying to kill me. And if God were your father, you would love me because he sent me. The reason you don't hear me is because you're not of God. That brings us to verse 48. Let's look at this. Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're a religious half-breed and you're, and you're demonized. Are we not right in saying that? Jesus answers, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. Just quick, brief observation there, friends. In verse 50 and verse 54, Jesus is pointedly clear that the Father seeks his glory. That is an astonishing statement. That God the Father seeks my glory. It is his mission to glorify me. So in other words, like you want, you want to be in lockstep. You want to have a heart after God's own heart. Seek the glory of Christ. Verse 55. But you have not known him, the Father. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A few other things to observe here. Verses 52 and 3, the Jews again appeal to Abraham. They've already appealed to him in verse 33 and verse 37 and verse 39. Then again here, they keep appealing to Abraham. Then verse 56, Jesus, mic drop moment number one. He says, your father Abraham, the one you keep appealing to, he appealed to me. You appeal to him, he appealed to me. You are all geeked up and excited about Abraham, and Abraham could not contain himself in thinking about my day. The Jews then 
Verse 57, it's like, bro, you're not even 50. Like, what are you talking about? Abraham has seen you. Then verse 58. Now, most everybody in this room understands from verse 58 that Jesus is claiming to be the Lord. He's claiming to be Yahweh, the Lord, God, the covenant God of Israel, right? Let's just turn to Exodus chapter 3 really quickly. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. This will not take long. This is pretty incredible stuff. In thinking about what Jesus says to them and how upset they get, many are familiar with this account. It's the burning bush. The Lord appears to Moses in the bush and says some things to him. This is one of those that we're familiar with from Sunday school and flannel boards. It's in the Bible, you know, storybook Bible books and all those kinds of things. It's there. We know about it. Verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Observation, huge one. Who is it that's speaking to Moses? The angel of the Lord, right? Who is that? We talked about this in Genesis repeatedly. The angel of the Lord written this way is understood to be the second person of the Trinity. The angel of the Lord is often called God. He is called the Lord. This is God the Son speaking from the burning bush to Moses. I don't know how many of us have understood it that way. We should. God the Son is speaking in the bush. So when, when the voice coming from the fire that is burning the bush but not consuming it speaks, this is God the Son speaking. Fast forward to verse 13. God has said that he's going to send. Like God the Son has said, I'm going to send you into Egypt to deliver my people. Verse 13, Moses responds, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say? God, the Son, the angel of the Lord, God spoke from the bush and said, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, when Jesus uses that language, before Abraham was, I am. He's referring back, obviously, to the covenant name of the Lord, but he's referring back to this moment in time. Because you remember the burning bush with Moses? You remember that? I'm the one who spoke to him. I'm the one who spoke to Moses. And Abraham rejoiced to see my name. He saw it and was glad. Some takeaways. Like there are other things that we can say. We're, we're done surveying passages. We're going to bring this to a close. You may be thinking, this is really, this is good. Like what, what should I leave here with as I walk out of these doors today? Well, my hope is that we have had, don't misunderstand me when I say this, I hope that we have had a kind of Emmaus Road experience where our hearts are burning because the scriptures have been opened and we have seen Christ from them. We have understood him and beheld him, what he has said and taught concerning himself. And regarding Jesus, like if you come here on any Lord's Day or if you have come here today, and regarding Christ, you have been in awe of him this morning. 
if you have been astonished at him and what he said about himself, if you have marveled at him and what he did in accomplishing the plan of God, if you have been struck by the fact that all of the scriptures really are a testimony about Christ, or if you have been gripped by the fact that Jesus is your Savior and that he has rescued you, then we have accomplished something meaningful already. It is enough that that would happen. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a beautiful verse. It's a very good purpose statement for the letter of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in Christ so that you might know that you have eternal life. John Calvin in commenting on that verse, says these words. As there ought to be a daily progress in faith, so he, John, says that he wrote to those who had already believed so that they might believe more firmly and with greater certainty and and thus enjoy a fuller confidence as to eternal life. Then the use of doctrine is not only to initiate the ignorant in the knowledge of Christ, but also to confirm those more and more who have been already taught. For there are still in us many remnants of unbelief, and so weak is our faith that we need a fuller confirmation. But we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed by having the office and power of Christ explained to us. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ, so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else. Amen. Lord, help our unbelief. With our whole heart. I mean, this is the cry I trust of every saint in here this morning. With my whole heart, may I trust Christ. May it be so. We all are saying, regardless of how we're feeling, like, oh, my soul, hope in Christ. Lord, hope in Christ. To see and behold Jesus, to have, as in Calvin's words, to have his power and his office explained, to have his grace extolled, that is what sustains our lives, saints. And it's how we are confirmed in the faith. It's how we're grown. This matters for us because our lives are up and down. I know this is true of me. No, it's true of you. Our hearts and our minds are every place. A number of us, like this is the kind of real talk section, right? A number of us may very well walk out of this building today and do or feel or think something sinful and frankly dumb before we even get home. On Tuesday, some of us will wake up feeling sad, discouraged, maybe even despairing, and we don't know why. And as a brother and I were talking this week, even if we knew why, it wouldn't matter because we'd still be melancholy. Later this week, some of us who are thrilled in the Lord in this moment will be grieved by how little we feel toward Him. Many of us this week will experience the grind and the trials of life under the sun in very identifiable ways. Some of these might be big things. Some of them, often, 
they are. Numerous, ongoing, smaller things. But at times, they grind us down to powder. At least that's how it feels. There are reasons that many of us feel in seasons of our lives that we're living somewhere between rage and tears and despondency. We are all, if we're honest, we are all quite fragile. We are more sinful than we think. We are more needy than we think. We are much weaker than we think. So, what is the most important thing that we could ever know? It's that Jesus is a Savior, and even more pointedly than that, that He is our Savior. It's one thing to say that Jesus is Lord, but to say He's my Lord, it's a different proposition altogether. To say that Jesus is a Savior, true, He's my Savior, our Savior, change your, change your life, change the game forever. To say and know that He is our Savior and that He came to make sure that we actually will arrive at the hope to which we've been called is the most important thing we could ever know. To know that Jesus is our peace and that He always is that is the most important thing we could ever wrap our minds around. So, how do we then live? How do we live together? In light of all of this, in light of Jesus and how incredible he is and what he said and what he accomplished and what he's promised us and the reality of our sin and weakness and frailty, how do we then live? There's a lot that could be said. This has everything to do with how we live together in this church. We seek, in light of all of this, to encourage one another in Christ, always. We point one another to Christ, always. This means that we, we have this hope to which we've been called, and Christ has secured that, and we often suffer, and we struggle. It means we weep with each other. It means, because we all, we all have more corruption remaining in us than we would ever want to acknowledge. We all, everyone in this room, is capable of extraordinary evil. Because of that, because we're all one moment away from ruining our lives, we watch over each other. We protect each other. Here's, this is tough for all of us. We get over ourselves. Right? And we receive sincere concerns, correction, and admonishment from each other. That's hard to do. Because we all, when we're corrected, when somebody challenges us, when somebody's concerned, immediately we're defensive. But we get over ourselves, and we invite that kind of thing. We take care of each other, saints, in other words. We've talked a lot about the fact that the Christian life is a pilgrimage. I don't need to labor that now. The church so much, in so many ways, is a hospital for sick people, right? We're trying to help one another die with dignity and hope, trusting Christ. This, this thing, this thing called church, is the only truly redemptive and sacred thing we do in this world. 
This is how. And I don't just mean on Sunday. This is a primary piece. But this, life in the church, is how we live life in the kingdom of God on earth while we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. And this thing that we do together, our faith, our liturgy, our life together, is more important for us than anything. And we do all of this in Christ and because of Him. And regardless of how it may sound to us in any given moment, we speak with the Scriptures and remind one another that this is true freedom. And that this is what safety actually looks like in a fallen world. The church is about Jesus and the people who need Him. And the church is about Jesus and the people who need Him and need each other. This has been long enough, and I'll leave you with this. Christ has done more than enough to save even us, wretched as we are. We're here because of Him, and we're here for one another. And so, saints, be encouraged and take heart in the fact that our Savior is merciful and He is patient. Don't take my word for that. Listen to these words from Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our